Today we're finishing our series entitled, What Did Jesus Say? What did Jesus say? We've been talking about some controversial topics such as homosexuality and uh, transgender. And I told you that this five-week series could easily be eight weeks or ten weeks because it's very complex, has all kinds of angles, all kinds of scenarios, all kind of what about this, what about that. And, uh, and so this is really a huge and difficult subject. And you may have noticed if you've been using the sermon outlines that I make available to you as you come in the doors uh, each Sunday that several times I had intended to address some practical questions along the way, but we didn't have time to get around to it. So today we're going to wrestle with some of these practical questions that I've been bumping forward Sunday by Sunday here. So uh, in, in these questions all have to do with what does Jesus say? How would Jesus relate to this social question or even this political question? And how do we relate to society and, 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 and with our relationships today? So parents, again, I want to give you fair warning. We're talking about sexuality, some sensitive things. So it's up to you if you want your young child to hear this. I've been telling you my opinion is that, that young people should hear this because they're hearing it everywhere else in our society today. So now before we actually read John chapter 14, and, and jump into quest the questions. Let's let's just very briefly review where we've been. I think this is important because, uh, th- again, this is complex, and I think it's good to do some repetition. And I know it's been summertime, and maybe you haven't been here for all of the messages. And I, if you if you've missed some, I really encourage you just get online or even go on Spotify or iTunes and put in Clarkson Community Church. These messages will come up. What did Jesus say? Yet you really need to. to hear these and, and, and get a theological grounding in, in these areas. So uh, just a quick review. Uh, really, we started off in Sermon 1 saying we need to get this right theologically and relationally. In fact, this has been the theme throughout our whole series. We need to get this right about homosexuality, transgendered, all of these issues. We need to get it right not only theologically but relationally. It's one thing to get clear on what the Bible says about sexuality and homosexuality. It's another thing to get this right relationally. And I've been very honest with you that generally speaking, we've gotten it pretty well right theologically, although that's even up for grabs in some churches and some denominations anymore. But we, we've really, in my opinion, we get an F relationally. But we Christians who follow Jesus and try to follow the Bible, we have oftentimes been very unloving, very unkind, even hypocritical in how we treat uh, LGBTQ people. And sadly, many times we've acted more like the Pharisees than we've acted like Jesus. And so we need to do some rethinking and repenting and intentional uh, changing in this regard. So... I want you to know, maybe you're here today and you are struggling with uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, maybe you're, you're, you're just having whatever kind of sexual attractions or, or struggles going on. I want you to feel safe here at Clarkson Community Church. No gay bashing around here. We're, we're, we'll talk more about this in a moment. But if you didn't hear especially my first sermon uh, that to kick off this series, you need to go online and listen to that. But we Christians, we need to think harder about how to relate well to gay people, lesbian people, transgendered people. And so that's what this whole series has been about. So then then we also talked about sexuality. And we've learned that sex 
is determined biologically. You know, it's right down to your chromosomes, XX and XY chromosomes, male and female chromosomes. And so, so I encourage you to read a book. Uh, some of you have asked. There's a book out by Ryan T. Anderson. He wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. Remember the old movie? Those of you a little older, you might remember, you know, when Harry met Sally. You know, the question used to be, can a man and a woman really just be friends without there being any sexual component? You know, the old movie was like that. Well, we're way past that now. Now the question is, can Harry actually become Sally? And uh, that, that's the kind of society we're in. And so, it, so Ryan Anderson has a, has a great book on this. And, and it, it's just really, really in-depth and covers a lot of the angles about the transgendered ideology and movement today when Harry became Sally. So uh, being a man or a woman is, is a biological, objective reality. You cannot change your sex. I know this is terribly unpopular and you'll be called a bigot and all kinds of things, but the simple truth is there is no such thing as transgender. You can't be transgender any more than you can be trans age or trans height or trans species. Your sex is not just a feeling, a subjective thing that you feel and you can change it when, if you want to. Maleness and femaleness uh, go way beyond your sexual body parts even. Maleness and femaleness is written into the very DNA of every cell in your body. And Ryan T. Anderson goes into all of this in, in, in his book. But everything in, in your body is designed to function as a male or a female. And so Jesus said this a long time ago. In the beginning, God created us male and female. Male and female. It's part of God's created design, part of his created order. And now in recent years, guess what? Science is actually confirming this. There are more and more studies coming out. Yes, there are fundamental differences about male and female. And, and sex is part of how we are created and wired. It's so much more than just a, a feeling or, you know, you can be whatever you want kind of thing. We, we also learned that marriage is exclusive, permanent, monogamous, and complementary. I said before you, we talk about uh, same-sex marriage, you have to talk about marriage. What is marriage? Why does government even care about regulating marriage? Why not just forget marriage and anybody can live in any kind of arrangement they want to live in? And, and, and who cares? Well, what, just give up on the whole concept of marriage. Is there any possible definition to marriage? We, we grappled with this. And, and Jesus clearly says, and now again, science backs it up, that, that it's, it's because of the children that, that, that we have to have a definition of marriage. And, and we talked about these four components. Marriage is exclusive. It's permanent. It's monogamous. It's complementary. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is what most governments, including our own United States government, has traditionally promoted and regulated marriage. That we want marriage, it should be exclusive and permanent and monogamous and complementary. Why? Because it's best for the children. This is the arrangement that we were designed for and works best and, and creates the next generation that has the best chance of being healthy and functioning. Governments have traditionally recognized this, and that's why they, they, they want healthy citizens to keep society going. But now that we have redefined marriage so that it is no longer complementary, 
you know, complementary being male and female, and, and they complement right down to their bodies. They complement one another. And, and, and now that we've redefined and say, no, no, gender doesn't matter. You can have same gender, same sex marriage. Now that we've redefined and we use the logic, well, it's discrimination if you don't allow, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but now that we've, we've broken that down, now the gate is wide open to just keep redefining marriage any way you want to. In fact, I told you, I prophesy, I predict that, that we're going to see this happen. In fact, it's, there's signs that it's already happening. There's some people, groups out there saying, well, I want to redefine marriage this way. I want to redefine marriage that way. And the moment you say no to anything, <gasps> discrimination, you can't. So now marriage means anything anybody wants it to mean. And it's the children who are going to pay the price. We've also had to honestly and courageously affirm that homosexual behavior is not God's will. It's just not how he designed us and created us to function. Jesus, again, made this clear when he said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. We looked at the Apostle Paul, his three references to homosexuality, especially in Romans 1. Many Christians today and many denominations today are trying to twist scripture to say that homosexual behavior is good and it's approved by God. And if you don't affirm it and celebrate it, then you are a bigot and you are, you are just a mean person. But when, when you look at Scripture honestly, there's just no way to reach that conclusion. So this is a quick summary of where we've been. And, and, and so now I want us to read a part of, of John 14. Listen to the words of Jesus. And then we're going to apply uh, some, some of his, his teaching to some practical questions that, uh, that confront us today. So uh, John 14, let's pick it up in verse 15. John chapter 14, let's pick it up in verse 15 and read down to about verse 27. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. By the way, as you go through this passage, this is one of the passages that give rise to what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. You, people say, well, how, how, come you believe, how can you believe in the Trinity? Three and one, one and three, does it make sense and all that? It, it's definitely mysterious and it's hard to get your mind. We can't fully explain it or understand it for sure. But there's passages like this where there's Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit, there's the Father. And somehow they're one, and somehow they're different. And, and, but just listen to this beautiful passage, and, and, and notice how the Trinity comes together. And notice the emphasis on love. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. You see, God... Is so powerful, he could just bowl everybody over and force everybody to know him and believe in him, but he doesn't work that way. He, he, he says, no, it's, it's going to be through my spirit, gently working in the hearts and minds of people. And, and some will respond and, and some won't. But I, but I grant my creation, I grant my children the freedom to love me back or not. And he says, the world cannot accept him, the spirit. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Are you feeling alone today? Are you feeling isolated? Maybe you're even struggling with your own sexuality. I want you to know this is a safe place for you. I want you to know that, that, that the Father loves you. And he sent Jesus to die for your sins and my sins. And he also sent the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You can know God. He can live inside of you. Verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live on that day. You will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Notice the link between love and obedience. Jesus repeatedly says here, if you really love me, you will keep my commandments. And in our discussion, we talk about love, love, love. What does it mean? Uh, and, and you can go to extremes on this. But some people want to take, take it to the extreme of, well, love just means you affirm and celebrate everything everybody does. No. And, and a lot of people are going around today saying, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And they're living in rank disobedience to Jesus. No. Don't go around saying you love Jesus and you're disobeying Jesus. And you're doing it intentionally and willfully and knowingly. And yet you love Jesus. No, it doesn't work. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the whole world? See, a lot of us are like, like Judas. You know, just, just show yourself to everybody. And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do you need some peace today? Is your heart troubled? I tell you, even as I had to study and prepare these five-part series, and oh my goodness, our world is in such chaos, and, and we can be allow our hearts to be so troubled and frightened, and what's going to happen, and what should I do, and how should I behave? And, all. and Jesus says, hey, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So notice how love leads to obedience. So our society, and I, and I see this so frequently now, it's trying to force us into you either affirm and celebrate gay behavior or you're a bigot and you're a hater. And somehow you and I have to get better and better in all of these life situations and relationships of saying, no, homosexual behavior is not what God intends for us. It's, it's not what's best for you. And the reason I'm saying this to you or standing up for this is, is not because I want to be a bigot or mean 
or arrogant or prideful. No, it's because I love you and I want what's best for you too. And so, you know, I love you. And in fact, I, you know, I want you to have equal rights and all this kind of thing. But, but I still want to say, I have to say as a follower of Jesus that, that this kind of behavior is wrong. And our society is forcing us more and more. You can't say it's wrong. And if you dare say it's wrong, then you're a bigot and you're a hater. And we've, we've, we've just got to keep wrestling with that and figure out how to say, no, it is wrong, but I love you. So let's talk about it. How do we, how do we apply this in, in, in some of these situations that we have to, to have to deal with? So with Jesus' words that we just read ringing in our ears right now, let's wrestle with a few practical questions. How do we apply Jesus' words of love and obedience, love and truth today? The first question is, as a follower of Jesus, what do I do with my same-sex attraction? One of the burdens I have as I, as I wrestled with this over this summer is realizing what, what has happened, already happening and still happening in many of our churches, our congregations, uh, of where there are young people who grow up and they become teenagers and maybe, maybe they realize that they have same-sex attraction, uh, they have these sexual struggles, and they feel so frightened and so isolated, and many times they end up leaving the church. Because the church is not perceived as a safe place for them to be honest about what they're struggling with. I've read several books by Christians who have same-sex attraction. Wesley Hill, Sam Albury, Beckett Cook, just to name three. They, they, they share how as young teenage boys, they, they were shocked to discover that they had same-sex attraction. They, they, they didn't choose those feelings. They were just there. And while their friends were awakening, you know, as young teens do, awakening to sexual attraction to the opposite sex, they were awakening to sexual attraction to the same sex. And they were shocked. And they, they were frightened and they were ashamed and they felt so isolated. And they, they, they didn't tell anyone for a long time. And my heart broke as I read their stories. How many young boys and girls feel this way? How many young boys and girls grow up in a church feeling this way? And then because they feel so ashamed and so isolated and so unaccepted, and they hear gay jokes and gay bashing by Christians at church, and they hear the affirmation and the love and the acceptance from the gay community, no wonder they leave the church. And go to the gay community. I, I really think Jesus is saying, hey, Clarkson Community Church, I want you to do a whole lot better in being a safe place for those who are struggling with their sexual issues. I want you to, yes, stay faithful and obedient to me theologically, but relationally, I want you to love people, especially teenagers. So that if, if they happen to feel that they're, they're feeling these kind of feelings, they can trust you and they can share what's really going on in their lives and they get understanding and they get empathy and they get support. So, so what do you do? What do you do with your same-sex attraction? Well, for one thing, you do the same thing that any of us does with our temptations and our attractions and our struggles. 
Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, it, it says about Jesus, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So we've got to remember in all these issues, whether we're talking about homosexuality or whatever we're talking about, we have to keep bringing it back to Jesus. Keep bringing it back to the gospel, the good news. And so Jesus is proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Here is Jesus in Jerusalem and Galilee and Judea. He, he's saying the kingdom of God has come near. God's presence, God's rule, his reign is now near. It's all around you and it can, and it can be in you. God is in the process of making things right again. So what do you do? You hear this good news and you repent and you believe it. That's what we're to do. Repentance means turning around and changing your course. That's what repentance means. And it obviously implies you're going in the wrong way. You're attracted this way. You feel like you want to go this way. You need to turn around and go Jesus' way. That's what repentance means. And you need to believe the good news. Believing in Jesus means you put your trust in Jesus. You believe in what he has done for you and, and what he can do for you. He died for your sins. He rose again to conquer sin and death. And now by his Holy Spirit, he can come and live inside of you. And, and he promises you a new body and a new heaven and a new earth one day. That is the good news. And he invites you to believe that. Sam Alberry writes in his book, the title of his book is, Is God Anti-Gay? And in his book, he, he says, when Jesus burst onto the scene, he didn't subdivide humanity into categories and give each one a separate message. One for introverts, one for extroverts. Here's the gospel for blacks. Here's the gospel for whites. Here's a gospel for men. Here's a gospel for women. Here's one for homosexuals. Here's one for heterosexuals. No. He said God's message for, it was the same for everybody. God's message for gay people is the same message for, for heterosexual people, for everybody. Repent and believe the good news. It's the same invitation to fullness of life in God. And this is the key. You find your identity now in Christ, not your sexual orientation. If, if you pay attention to all the conversations going on, it's like the most fundamental reality of a human being is their, is their sexual orientation now. Before anything else, no. You need to find your identity in Christ. I love how Beckett Cook put it. He, I recommend his book to you as well. It's called A Change of Affection. Cook, uh, Beckett Cook says, Although I struggle with same-sex attraction, I would not call myself a gay Christian. Being gay is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. He says, I am a follower of Christ who happens to experience same-sex attraction. Other Christians may struggle with all kinds of sin, gossip, greed, anger, pride, and so on, but I seriously doubt that they would identify themselves as a greedy Christian or a gossiping Christian. So why would I go around identifying myself as a gay Christian? I love that. Isn't that, isn't that great? So let's find our identity in Christ. I am a child of God who happens to struggle with pride, I am a child of God who happens to struggle with gossip, 
or greed. I am a child of God who happens to struggle with same-sex attraction. So don't let that define you. Now, as a follower of Jesus who struggles with same-sex attraction, you have a couple of options. One is you can remain single or you can marry heterosexually. I, I've, in my reading, that there's many people who have chosen one or the other options. Wesley Hill is a Christian. He's actually a professor at a Christian university. He realized that as a young teenager that he had same-sex attraction. He's written a book called Washed and Waiting. You could, he tells his whole story there. He wrestles with the biblical text and what Jesus has to say about it. And, and he has chosen, I, I believe he's in his 30s now, uh, he, he, he has chosen to remain single. And he admits that loneliness is a problem. But he says you can really alleviate a lot of your loneliness by having some really good friends in your life. And isn't this what church is supposed to be? Where we have some really close friends in our lives. And we're all on this journey together following Jesus. Wesley Hill has same-sex attraction, but he's living out a single lifestyle in obedience to Jesus. Or you could marry heterosexually. There are quite a few uh, people who say, you know, they, they're kind of bisexual, if you will, or they, they, their, their primary attraction is to the same sex, but they're, it's not like they're completely unattracted to the opposite sex. Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian. She's written a book. She's an amazing writer. Encourage her. She has now two books out on it, telling her story and reflections on all these different issues. And, and she, she was a lesbian, and, but she's now married to a man who is a pastor, and, and they have children. She's written some books telling her story. But what is not an option for you if you follow Jesus is to act out your same-sex attraction. That would dishonor Christ. Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Another question, should I, should I attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? Some of you have been asking, when are you going to address this one? When are you going to address this one? Should I attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? This is such a personal question, isn't it? It's a painful question because obviously you have a relationship with the person or you wouldn't even be invited, right? So you already have some kind of relationship. Maybe you're friends with them. Maybe even best friends with them. Maybe it's your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister. As a follower of Jesus, should you attend their same-sex wedding? It is so hard to get this right theologically and relationally. On the one hand, you believe theologically that same-sex marriage is not consistent with God's design for sexuality. And on the other hand, you believe relationally that God calls you to love people. So what do you do? If, if you don't go, it may destroy the relationship. If you go, you, you may appear to be celebrating and affirming a wedding that really isn't a wedding in God's eyes. And you may even be encouraging people on a path to hell. So what do you do? I see this as a Romans 14 issue. It's one of those conscience questions that Paul talks about in Romans 14 in a parallel passage over in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The, the Christians 
in, in Rome, for example, in Romans 14, had a controversy going on. They, they had recently come out of pagan worship where, you know, they had idols in their temples and all that went with that. And they have recently become Christians. And some of them refused to eat meat because the meat that they had just purchased at, down at the market there in Rome may have just maybe that morning been offered ceremonially and symbolically to some of the pagan gods at one of the other temples. It was a common practice at the time. And so these Christians said, in obedience to Jesus Christ, I will not eat meat. I will not buy any meat at the market because it might have been offered as a sacrifice to these pagan gods. And I I want nothing to do with that idolatry that I have come out of. So out of obedience to Jesus, we should not eat meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. But then other Christians said, hey, who cares if it was offered to idols? It's just meat. And we know that idols aren't even real. We believe in Jesus. So they had a real difference of opinion. And so they were asking Paul, the apostle, what should we do? Is it okay for us Christians to eat meat that may have been offered as idol to, to the idols? Should we? And they had strong opinions. Some said yes, some said no. And guess what? Paul doesn't resolve their problem for them. He says each one needs to make up their own mind before God and do what they think honors God the most. And then he says, don't judge those who disagree with you. So that's what I'm saying to you today on this issue. I see this as a Romans 14 conscience question. You say, but Craig, personally, what would you do? (laughs) Well, I'll just tell you personally, I think, I think I would not go. I don't think I could go. In good conscience. I would feel like my presence there would be part of the celebration. And that I would appear to be celebrating something that God clearly says is wrong. And it would, honestly, it would just break my heart and make me sad to even be there. And see it. So whatever decision you make, I I think it would be a good idea for you to express very clearly and lovingly to your friend or your family member, whoever it is, what your feelings are. So, for example, I might say something like, hey, you know, I I love you. And and, and some of what I would say depends on the relationship we have. Are we really, are we talking about one of my kids here? Or are we talking about a a distant friend here? So you have to apply this to, to the right relationship and right context but in some way whether you decide to go or not go you need to they probably already know where you stand and what you believe and you you just need to make make it clear that that they know the truth and whichever way you decide like you know i just i feel like i i just can't go because you know that i don't believe in same-sex marriage but i do love you and i and i want our friendship to continue Or if you do decide to go, you could say something like, you know, I'm here because I love you and I want to, uh, you know, keep our friendship. But you know that, that, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I I don't believe this is the best thing that God has in mind for you. What, What is important? What is important is that you follow your conscience as a follower of Jesus. And, you know, relationships are a two way street, aren't they? You are responsible for your words, your actions, your your attitudes. 
but you don't have control over their words and actions and attitudes. If they call you a homophobe or a bigot or intolerant, that, you know, that's so easy today. People use that to just shut down conversation right out of the gate. If they call you a homophobe or a bigot or intolerant, it, it, it might open up to discuss with them what tolerance and love really mean. They want you to be tolerant, right? Well, how about them tolerating your opinions too? So I understand this is so painful. This is so hard. But, but don't let our wayward society intimidate you or browbeat you into thinking that love and tolerance means celebrating everything anybody wants to do. Here's a related question. Should my, what should be my bedroom policy when my gay child or friend comes to my house? Short answer, Romans 14 again. You think through the issues and you think through the exact situation you're facing and you follow your conscience. Here's some, some questions, though, that you can ask yourself. Would you let your adult heterosexual, heterosexual, not homosexual, heterosexual son or daughter sleep in the same room with their boyfriend or girlfriend? I mean, this has been an issue for years now, right? If you let your son or daughter, who they're heterosexual and they're, you know, they're not married and they, they have their boyfriend or girlfriend over and you let them sleep together in the same bedroom in your house, why would you deny that to homosexual son or daughter? See? Another question. Are, are there young children still in the home that might see this and get the wrong impression? And here's something else to consider. Why is it that we Christians have to do all of the tolerating and changing and loving and affirming. Why not talk with your gay child and their partner and say, hey, I love you and I want to have a great relationship with you, but you know my beliefs on this and could you please respect me and my beliefs and have separate bedrooms while you're in my home? I would really appreciate that if you did. You see, relationships should be a two-way street. Yes, we want to do all we can to love and honor and respect them, but they should do all they can to love and honor and respect our point of view. Another question. Isn't limiting marriage to one man and one woman discriminatory? And this, this is where we don't have time to get into, you know, the separation of church and state. And, and uh, you know, what about the, the baker and the florist, you know, that are being forced to bake a cake for a gay wedding and all that. I wish we had time to get into that. But, but otherwise, the series would have been like 10 sermons long. So, but, so here's the final question. Isn't it discrimination to limit it to one man? Well, obviously, first of all, it's no longer limited, right? Same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. On June 26, 2015, with its decision in Oberfeld versus Hodges, the Supreme Court of the United States redefined marriage. By a vote of five to four, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage the law of the land. And, this, and, and here was the key. I, I, in some of my reading, I, I, I read what some of their arguments for and against were. And, and a key argument for same-sex marriage was it is discrimination it is like racism to deny gays the right to marry. And that was a powerful argument that was presented to the Supreme Court. And, and now more and more people are persuaded by this, especially our younger people. 
in, in, in our society today and even in our churches today are, are tempted to say, well, of course, if you do not affirm and celebrate same-sex marriage, you are a bigot. You are discriminating. You are just, well, you're just a mean person. And so it's kind of strange that, 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 that we Christians now, they claim the high moral ground, and those of us who try to follow what Jesus said are suddenly on the, are immoral and mean people. So let, let me try to explain brief, briefly why limiting marriage to one man and one woman is not discriminatory. You may want to read some of Ryan T. Anderson's books on this. Um, he, he, he wrote the book uh, when, when Harry Became Sally about transgender, but he also has some other books on marriage. Ryan Anderson in his book on marriage puts it this way. Everyone has the right to enter into marriage. Defined as a man and a woman entering into a committed relationship. Everybody has that right. So we're not discriminating against anybody. What the real question is, by what principle do we redefine marriage to include same-sex couples? That's the question. What gives anyone the right to redefine marriage? See, that's what the question is. Any man or woman that they, are committed and love each other, they, 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 they can get married. So we're not discriminating against anybody. The question is, what gives anybody the right to redefine marriage to include same-sex couples? See, what, what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to redefine marriage to include the adult relationship of their choice. And the adult relationship of their choice happens to be a same-sex couple. Well, guess what? There are other adults who want to redefine marriage to include the adult relationship of their choice, which may be a thruple or a quartet. Is that okay? So you're saying gender doesn't matter. Well, guess what? Some people are saying number doesn't matter. And, and if you say no, you know, no, no, you, you can't have a threesome or a foursome or a fivesome or a sixsome or whatever else you want in marriage. And you can't rewrite marriage to mean this or that. Oh, well, how, what gives you the right? By what principle do you redefine marriage to include same-sex couple? And then you turn around and deny them the same right to redefine marriage the way they want to. Isn't that discrimination too? You see, th does this make sense to you? I already told you this, but now that we have redefined marriage and we've used the argument of discrimination, well, that same logic can be applied forever now. So just keep redefining marriage till it means whatever anybody wants it to mean. Until eventually it means nothing. Because the moment you say, no, we are not going to redefine marriage that way, oh, discrimination. You see? And the real victims in all of this will be the children. So really, this has nothing to do with discrimination. It has to do with what marriage is. It's just what marriage is. I wish we had time to discuss about what about the cake bakers? What about separation of church and state? And even, can we trust the Bible? I mean, why should we even believe this Bible that's so old that it has anything relevant today to say about our sexuality? We don't have time to get around to all that. Maybe, maybe sometime... In the future, we'll, we'll come back around to those, those questions. But as we, we, we close out our series, I just want to point us back to Jesus and read a verse out of John chapter 14, verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. 
You can have Trinitarian love inside of you if you love him and obey him. Jesus says, my father will love them. We will come and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And then he goes on to say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. 